Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks to Marwa Daoudi about her new book, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change and Human Security. Then John McKinley and I talk about my new report, Cross-Border Aid, COVID-19, and U.S. decisions in Syria. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Marwa Daoudi is an assistant professor at Georgetown University and the author of the recently published book, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change and Human Security. Marwa, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much for having me. In 2013, Thomas Friedman argued for the role of drought kicking off the Syrian civil war. Citing Samir Aita, he wrote that after Assad took power in 2000, he opened up the agricultural sector to large farmers, many of them government cronies. They bought up land, they drilled for as much water as they wanted. The water table dropped and that began driving small farmers off the land into towns where they had to scrounge for work and that helped precipitate the Syrian civil war. Does that sound basically right to you? It's interesting to contextualize such claims. And Thomas Friedman was one voice amongst many others, mainly originating in the US or in in Europe, who started claiming that there was a climate conflict nexus and that it was applicable to the Syrian case. And as you described very accurately, Uh, There was actually a drought between 2006 and 2010, and it did impact the agricultural and the farmers' community in northeastern Syria tremendously. It caused poverty, unemployment, uh, migration, displacement. Uh, The problem with such analysis is that it disregards the political context, the origins of the human insecurity experienced by these populations, which in fact lie in the types of policies that were chosen, which were in fact motivated by ideological choices. Oh, sorry. So, so, so help, help, let's unpack that. Yes. So the government made choices about resources. The government made choices about politics. How did people respond? The choices that were made were to liberalize the agricultural sector. Mm-hmm and to focus on the urban centers, to liberalize all of the sectors that were providing safety nets to the agricultural populations in terms of subsidies on food and fuel at the time when there was a very, very drastic drought happening. Now, this clearly impacted the human security of the population, and this is what I show in my book, but this is one element of several layers of human insecurity over the decades preceding the uprising, which also find their roots in political discontent, political repression, economic insecurity rooted in corruption, and different choices and policy choices which disregarded the needs of the most vulnerable populations in Syria. And this was true in the Northeast for years. I remember being in Damascus and hearing uh, probably in in the early 2000s and hearing that there were disturbances in Hasaka all the way over in the Northeast of the country. Is there something different about environmental issues from other issues of governance, from other issues of, of, of what you might call government repression? What is important in understanding this environmental insecurity is that You cannot understand it if you don't 
related to other types of insecurities. We need to have a multi-layered approach and analysis which looks into what type of environmental insecurity you have, which is actually the drought, a very severe drought, but it was the way it was managed specifically at that time. But you also have the political components, which is what choice was made by the ruling elite at the time when it decided to liberalize. And again, you mentioned Hasake, the Northeast. There's something very specific about that region. It's one of the poorest regions in Syria, which has depended on agricultural production, food production to sustain its livelihood. What happened is when the subsidies were abruptly removed to the population, that precipitated increased poverty and increased displacement because of whole families who had to migrate to other sides of the country where they had relatives because they could not sustain themselves anymore and the government did not address their needs. That created discontent, drawing on environmental issues, but it's also the political economy and the political management of the drought that triggered that discontent. And again, this is one of the different, several elements which has precipitated major uh, mobilization and uprising uh, based on global human insecurity in Syria, where the drought was one of the elements. But of course, economists argue that agricultural subsidies are often distorting and that if farmers were being sustained by getting the subsidies, that that suggests that, that this, in fact, was a sector that needed to be reformed anywhere, anyway. Maybe there were too many people in the agricultural sector. You could make a, an economic argument that this was necessary. And the question is, how do you handle the political consequences of your economic argument? Is that really what was going on, or is there something more uh, nefarious afoot? That's a very good point. Clearly, the problem with subsidies is that they can encourage corruption. And that's what happened as well in Syria. People were buying the fuel at a subsidized price and selling it outside of the country. And actually that was enriching the upper skills of the society, even in the near northeast of Syria, where the poorest parts of the population were not always benefiting. So there was a need to reform. The problem is even the World Bank when the organization advised the Syrian government to reform and to remove the subsidies, their advice was to gradually remove these subsidies, not abruptly. And again, there was a severe drought. So the farmers needed even more the subsidies at the time of the drought. But then the, the Ba'ath party at the time and President Bashar al-Assad decided to move on to uh, what he described as social market economy, where he was getting, you know, inspired by the reforms implemented in Germany after the Second World War uh, to bring reform to the society. The problem is that type of reform, which was meant to diminish corruption, increased corruption, crony capitalism, and benefits to the urban centers and the urban merchants at the expense of the rural populations. What's interesting is the more we talk, the more it feels like the real driver is politics and not economics, that you can look at the economics of regulatory reform and subsidy reform and all those kinds of things, but they're really driven in your mind by the imperatives of elite politics in a country where, where you might think, well, it's not a democracy, so it doesn't matter what most of the people think. And I think the, the argument that I hear you making is it actually does matter what most of the people think, because it's not that you have to get people's vote, but if you push people too much, they'll revolt. Well, clearly, 
the more people are marginalized, the more discontented, the more they will react at some point. And I think the trigger was also the Arab awakening, which happened in the region, which suddenly echoed very much within Syria. And clearly the roots of the uprisings are about social injustice, about repression, about economic insecurity, but there is a political dimension to it, clearly. I do think that the more you push people, the more you have them become vulnerable, the more there will be a reaction at some point. And the wealth gap started being very visible in Syria. If you look at the years starting from the early 2000s and the decade that preceded the uprising, there were more external signs of, of wealth, like being a parent in the Syrian society, and increasing poverty, which showed actually that there was increased corruption and a new caste of ruling elites, which came after Bashar al-Assad came to power, which was getting a lot of the benefits of this new reforms and new, new economy, which was supposed to benefit everyone. And if you look at the official statements at the time, it was to end the era of corruption. It actually increased corruption in Syria. So I would say it's a mix of political and economic elements. But the, the issue of social injustice was very important for the people who felt completely marginalized in these efforts. So I wouldn't ask you to give advice to Bashar al-Assad, but if you're in the position where you're the Syrian government and you are trying to preside over a weakening economy, what do you compromise on? What do you try to accentuate? How do you create a balance to move forward when it doesn't feel like there are a lot of very good options? It's interesting because at the time when these reforms were taken, there were very interesting debates happening between Syrian experts in Damascus. Uh, they were meeting, writing papers about the reforms, about the need to modernize, about the need to change the, the economy and the social distribution of resources. And they were focusing on the fact, of course, reforms were needed, but the, the pace of the reforms and the need to preserve the safety nets for the vulnerable parts of the population was very much present in those papers that I analyzed in my book, actually. And these were economists, irrigation specialists, agricultural specialists, etc., who at the time were able to write quite openly. And of course, their opinion was not taken into account. But their, their main take on all of this is that we need reform, but it has to be done by keeping in mind the need for safety nets, which were completely removed very abruptly, and taking into account also the drought that was happening at the same time. So I believe the Syrian government at the time did not listen to these different voices and opinions. When it decided to reinstall the subsidies, it was already too late to do so. And they did not securitize the drought. They did not take into account what was happening in the remote areas of the country, which ended up impacting a lot the urban and rural divide, which is one of the root causes of the uprising as well. And it's not a coincidence that some of the mobilizations took place in Damascus and in some of the urban centers, but they really, really increased in the rural areas where the people felt completely marginalized. So I would say it's hard to give, of course, this is retroactive advice, but if you go back to the papers written at the time by these experts who were debating all of these reforms, they had very clear guidelines, which was, yes, we need to reform the agricultural sector. We need to modernize irrigation. We need to modernize the agricultural production and the subsidies that are provided to the population. But again, keep in mind what they're telling us and we need to listen to them. And it needs to be done gradually, which was not the case. One of the broader threats that Syria faces now is the, th the threat of COVID-19. There are cases within Syria, the health infrastructure 
is relatively weak. The level of poverty in Syria is relatively high. There are a lot of people who are crowded together. Should we be thinking about the threat of COVID-19 and the government's potential inability to respond effectively to that as a similar kind of threat to environmental threat that you describe in your book, or is it somehow different? This is an added security threat for the vulnerable populations, which is unfortunately the same way the water and the drought security threat was not managed, is currently mismanaged by the government, which is uh, more keen on uh, having statements where the, the threat is being contained effectively, that there are only a few cases. These are very, very underestimated when it comes to Syria. The problem is it's combined with increasing poverty levels. We know that the food prices have doubled in the recent uh, months, that people are actually hungry, and that not much is being done to address their needs. So my concern with this is that a lot of people are dying and we're not hearing exactly how many are dying. And the healthcare system, the hospitals are not equipped to address the needs of these populations. In addition, I would say the refugees outside of Syria, the Syrian refugees are the first also victims of all this because there are also far-reaching economic consequences for them in their hosting countries. I know that you have spent most of your academic career looking at, at issues of the environment in Syria. How much of what you're describing is generalizable to the region? How much is it something, should people who are interested in Iraq read your book to see a possible future for Iraq? Should people interested in Jordan look at your book to think about possible futures for Jordan? Are the phenomena that you've seen largely true throughout water-scarce countries in the Middle East? Or is there something particular about the way these issues came together in Syria that made them explosive, which aren't generalizable to the rest of the region? I believe it is generalizable. And uh, my book has a conceptual component, which for me is generalizable to other cases of climate insecurity. And I will explain why. For example, I develop a new conceptual framework, which I call Human Environmental Climate Security, HEX, to show the interactions between human security, climate security, and political and economic structures. And by doing so, I try to outline the unequal power structures that cause or encourage human suffering with the significant implications for climate insecurity and its consequences. So this is, I think, relevant for relations, power relations between the global north and the south or a central government and its marginalized subjects. And my, my next project actually is to look into climate insecurity and food insecurity, comparing the Middle East and Syria and beyond Syria and a few African countries which experience the same level of environmental insecurity. So this combined multi-layered uh, conceptual analysis is applicable, I think, by looking at all of these different layers of economic, climate, uh, political factors, and is applicable to other cases than the Syrian case. We will look forward to reading it. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for this interesting conversation, John. Next up, John McKinley and I talk about my new report. In Marwa Dawoodi's interview with John, she said that political choices about resources led to the human insecurity that populations in northeast Syria felt prior to the outbreak of the conflict. This exacerbated the impact of the drought at the time, which affected agricultural communities in the area. How have political decisions exacerbated the impact of COVID-19 in northeast Syria? 
Is there a link? Yeah, I think that's an interesting parallel, actually, because in some ways, the way that the Syrian government has treated the Northeast has been even more pronounced um, in terms of its marginalization and the amount that it has undermined authorities in in the Northeast's ability to to defend against the spread of COVID-19. In part, this is because the government can now control all cross-line aid. So that's aid that's delivered from Damascus through UN agencies and through NGOs as well. That comes from Damascus and it requires the authorization of the Syrian government. And so they have not only delayed shipments that organizations like the WHO were trying to send to the Northeast, but they've outright rejected them as well. And they have also made sure that when deliveries are sent, that they benefit hospitals that are under regime control. And so that means that there are all of these health centers across the region, which are completely undersupplied at the moment. There's not a single district in the Northeast which has the appropriate level of hospital beds per people, per population. And and it's incredibly difficult for uh, humanitarian organizations to, to build up their capacity because of these restrictions that the government has placed. It's a self-sabotaging tactic, though, because in the case of a pandemic, if a cluster of infections occurs anywhere, then then it's impossible to contain. And this is one of the things that I, I argue in the report is that if COVID is able to run rampant through any opposition-held areas or, or areas in the Northeast which are outside of the regime's sort of de facto control, that would certainly spread and would then uh, spread to regime-held areas. The instinct of withholding resources until people are willing to play ball with you is so deeply ingrained in the way the Syrian government sees its toolkit that it may be that they don't see COVID-19 being different at all. Yeah. What would cutting off cross-border access mean? So the UN has a mandate to conduct cross-border operations into Syria, which the Security Council in the in the UN gave it originally in 2014. This was when the majority of Syrian territory was outside of the control of the Syrian government, and the government was either unable or unwilling to deliver aid to, to all of the people in Syria. So the UN decided to designate four border crossings, one of which was into the northeast uh, from Iraq, one was from Jordan into the south, and two were into northwest Syria from Turkey. Now, the one in the south had not been used very much since the regime retook the area last year, but the one into the northeast was, until January, being used predominantly by medical agencies of the UN. So the WHO was using it to to deliver medicines, vaccinations, things like that, to the medical facilities in the region. And Russia and China blocked it in January. And so now, since January, we've really seen the impact of that loss of cross-border aid. UN chief humanitarian official, Mark Lowcock, said in a statement to the Security Council that medical supplies delivered from Damascus to northeast Syria, which is now the only way they can they can go, only reached 31% of the facilities that were previously dependent on the cross-border access from Yarubia. So the impact has been dire. Just as the pandemic has been spreading, the main way in which the situation has changed is in the medical sector. And, uh, and the situation has got much worse. 
But again, this is an example of not only the government in Damascus, but I think their allies in Moscow and Tehran are saying, let's end this war. And the way to end the war is by persuading people that if you want anything, it has to come through Damascus and you have to make your peace with Damascus. I've been talking to Russians, some of whom argue that this is a way to avoid a military operation. You just sort of starve people out and you end the resistance. And it feels like a continuation of the old pattern of Syria, which is if you want anything, you have to go through the central government. So you just mentioned Russia's strategy for blocking UN access to the border crossings. What is China's strategy? I think China is much more interested in the argument of state sovereignty. On the whole, the way China views the world is that its relations should be with governments in other countries and that government should be able to control what happens within their own borders. And this is a case where I think China has been sort of attracted to the idea that the Syrian government should be the ones who determine where aid goes. Uh, they don't like the fact that with these cross-border operations, they happen without the consent of the Syrian government. Under the way it was set up, the UN has to notify them that a, that a shipment is being made, but the government has no ability to stop that. And so I think for, for China, it's all about sovereignty. China has its own issues, of course, with Xinjiang and with Tibet, and there are areas which the government is very interested in, in not feeling like it has to, to share sovereignty at all and is, I think, very resistant to international calls to give greater autonomy to some parts of the country. Interestingly, though, China often plays both sides of the street. China has the advantage because the Communist Party is its own independent organization. In some cases, you have the foreign ministry going out and having relations with governments, while the Communist Party reaches out and has relationships with parties, some of whom are opposed to governments, and the Chinese get the benefit from playing both rather than choosing one or the other. And certainly when it was less clear exactly where the war in Syria was going, the Chinese government was exploring discussions with the opposition. I think Will is exactly right though, that as it is clear that the government is in the process of winning, as it is clear that the jihadis are not gonna take over Syria, the Chinese have decided that, that their interests lay in, in advancing the sovereignty argument. As one final question, what should the takeaway of the report be? What action should the U.S. government be taking? So we've talked a lot about the Northeast, but what's the, the really timely part of this is that the mandate for the remaining two border crossings, which are into the Northwest, is going to expire on July the 10th. And Russia has indicated that it may veto any attempt to renew this mandate. Now, the implications would be absolutely devastating. This is where more than 3 million Syrians are displaced in, in, in the area, are living in, in Idlib, and they're living in absolutely dire conditions. Just in April, the UN reached nearly 3 million people with food security and livelihood interventions through cross-border aid. Nothing like that would be possible, or nothing like that scale would be possible if they don't have access to the border crossings. 
And so I think that the United States really needs to be more forceful about highlighting the just devastating humanitarian toll that losing these these border crossings would take. But I think they also need to raise this to a higher diplomatic level. I think this needs to be something that Secretary Pompeo is engaging in. I think they have leverage, which is being underutilized. After all, they fund a lot of UN humanitarian operations which happen in Damascus and which benefit civilians living in regime-held areas, as they should. But I think that they can probably place more pressure on the UN to ensure that they maintain standards of impartiality, neutrality, and independence in their aid operations to try to, to counteract the obstruction of the Syrian regime and its allies. Thank you so much for joining me. Tune in next week for a meze on contraband camouflage fabric. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.